Alrighty. Good morning, everyone. Revelation 1 is where we'll be. So if you, not kidding, um, if you have um, a Bible, you should turn there. If you don't, if you have a smartphone, you, you should redeem that um, and download a Bible application. Um, and uh, Revelation 1 is the text for this morning. We're going to go right through that chapter. Um, and now probably the reason there's nervous giggles is when a preacher says Revelation, you think I'm going to pull out a chart um, and tell you which day Jesus is going to return um, and uh, going to be all nervous about dragons and helicopters in the Middle East. Um, that's actually not the purpose of Revelation. I don't know how well you know it. Um, and it's certainly not the purpose of Revelation 1, and so we'll show you the purpose of Revelation 1 this morning. I'm not smart enough to make up sermons, and so what I'm going to do is just stay in the text. I'm going to read the, the, the whole text. We're going to go through the whole of that chapter together this morning, and, and the scripture says, blessed are those who read this prophecy, and I believe that to be true. And so if you read it, just the reading of it, just the public, I could stand up here, read it, and close in prayer, and lives would be changed by the transformative power of the Spirit. And so I'm not going to do much more than that. I hope you didn't have higher expectations than that. This is kind of as smart as I get reading the Bible, making a few observations, um, and then we can all go grab a cappuccino together. Have you ever felt discouraged or despondent at the seeming lack of God's work in your world? Uh, have you ever had days where you wake up and you go like, I wonder what on earth he is up to? Uh, I mean, you don't have to go far to run into examples of human frailty and fallenness, right? You just got to get out of bed. And it's there. In fact, if we're honest, we don't even have to get out of bed. Um, because in our own thoughts, in our own wrestles, in our own motives, in our own hitting snooze 20 times, we realize that there's a fallenness within us that we carry within us. And so on a macro level, when we look at the world, when you read News 24, you can be going, what on earth is God doing? And what is God doing on earth at the moment? And in your own life, at your seeming lack of ability to change, Paul describes it in Romans 7, the things I should do, I don't do. The things I shouldn't do, I always do. Hey? Uh, that's many of our experiences. But we read Romans 8 together as a church. We forget Romans 7 that Paul wrote it. But we all live, well, most of us live in a Romans 7 world. The things I should do, I don't. The things I shouldn't do, I'm drawn to all the time. And sometimes just in our, in our lives, we can get despondent. God, what are you doing? At the moment, I, I know that when you return, you promise that you will redeem all things, that you'll give me a new glorious body that I'll be without temptation. But what are you doing in me now? And, and, and what are you doing in and amongst us now? And what are you doing in the world now? I, I, I mean, is Satan winning? Didn't you promise you would kick in the gates of hell and that, that they wouldn't prevail against the church? What is going on? Well, the text that we'll face today was written by a man who must have been plagued by such thoughts. It's written by the Apostle John. Some scholars will tell you it's not written by the Apostle John, but it starts by telling us it was written by the Apostle John. Um, and so I kind of just go with that. And it's late in his life. Just by the way, We've got some time this morning. A textual critic will tell you it can't be written by the Apostle John because the style is so different from John's epistles. Um, and what I would say to you then is, well, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, wrote Mere Christianity, okay? Philosophical apologetics, written in the Second World War to explain how a good God can allow suffering, written for Oxford graduates, okay? And so if you want to rush out and, and, and buy something that's really going to make your mind think about the philosophy of Christianity as a worldview, Mere Christianity is a great place to start. He also wrote the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay, now I can't read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my son, which I do once a year, and, and say, well, mere Christianity and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe can't be written by the same person. They're different genres. 
different narrative forms. And so when John writes his epistles, he's writing in a different narrative form from when he writes Revelation. It's still the same author, okay? He writes it on the island of Patmos. It's late in his life. It's probably 95 AD, which makes John in his 90s. So he's a man in his 90s sitting on the island of Patmos. Now picture this. Uh, I want you guys just to get into the scripture a little bit. We, we, we tend to either over-personalize or depersonalize the scripture. The, the truth about the scripture is that it's not about you, but it is for you. Okay. But, so we need to know what, what it meant when it was written. Uh, John is, is over 90. He's been exiled okay, to the Robin Island of the day, the rocky prison island of Patmos, under the punishment of the Roman Emperor Domitian, who is the cruel of the Roman emperors who has come before. So every other Roman emperor has been pretty cruel to opposition. Domitian takes the cake. He makes the rest of them seem like altar boys. He's the first emperor who demands worship of himself as God. And so Domitian says, I'm him. I'm the son of man. I'm the one. You must worship me. And he mints coins with his image and likeness on them. And on that coin is him holding his right hand out with seven stars in his right hand, which was the language of the day of he's the divine. He's the one who controls the universe. Now, he hates a group of people who says, that's not right. We know the guy who holds seven stars, and it ain't you. You guys killed him. He rose from the dead. He's coming again. He's going to crush you all, okay? That was the message of the early church. You've just gone through the book of Acts. The, the, the sermons weren't seeker sensitive. They're like, you killed Jesus. He's ticked. He's coming back. Repent now. He's going to kill you, all right? That's, that's Peter's big message in, in the book of Acts, okay? And everyone goes, all right, I'll repent now, okay? And they baptize thousands of them. And, and no one builds church like this anymore. We go like, no, he must be super sensitive. Peter's like, uh-uh, he's coming back. Sword, eyes of fire, it's gonna be bad. Get baptized. People are like, all righty, okay? And so th that's how they built um, the early church by the power of the Holy Spirit. But remember that image of Domitian, this cruel emperor who has now exiled John in his 90s. Now, now who was John? John was the disciple that we're told that Jesus dearly loved. Uh, now, he loved them all. He had a special friendship, a special affinity with this man called John. He, he was part of James and John, the brothers that they called the Sons of Thunder. That wasn't just a witty bowling team name. They, they, they had temper issues, okay? And so they were imperfect, but God loved John. Uh, Jesus loved John, loved his zeal. We're told that as they reclined at the table, John rests his head on Jesus's chest. And so he's heard Jesus' heartbeat uh, he knows what he smells like. He's, he spent three and a half years on an extended dude's camping trip with him. Um, he knows Jesus, and Jesus loves him dearly. He saw Jesus do and heard Jesus say the most amazing things, things that upended his life. He saw Jesus raise, raise people from the dead. He saw Jesus cast out demons. He, just remember, he's one of the sons of thunder. He's there when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, and blessed are the peacemakers, and it upends John's life. It transforms him. He saw Jesus killed. He saw Jesus raised from the dead. And he saw Jesus ascend back to heaven. That must have been a weird moment. But he saw it. He saw the church spread from Jerusalem to the ends of the known world. He saw the gospel go from Jews to pagans and Gentiles and to barbarians and to Scythians and to savages. He watched the church that he loved get persecuted and he saw or heard of the brutal execution of all of his friends. I don't know if you know this. Every apostle except John martyred. Shot with arrows, cut in half with swords, pulled apart by horses, eaten by lions, crucified upside down, Peter. All of them martyred except John. They tried. 
They tried to stone him to death, it didn't work. Um, some, we're not sure if this is myth, but some of the church fathers believe that they dipped John in boiling oil and he didn't die. So, so you can imagine this, this, this scarred, wounded, crippled old man on the island of Patmos waiting and wondering what Jesus is doing in the world. He had helped to plant and pastor churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he found himself separated from those churches. I'm going to encourage you to go home and read Revelation 2 and 3. He's going to write to all of those churches. He's an old man living as a prisoner of the world's most corrupt and violent emperor. The South Africans love to whine about government, okay? And we're supposed to hold government to account, but we think we kind of live under the worst government in the history of the world. And John manages to praise Jesus. He lives under Domitian. He's, we've got no, no contemporary parallel to what Domitian is like. Just think about it for a sec. I know when you think apostle, you think he wears his undies on the outside and, and he kind of just recites scripture all day and never has moments of doubt. But I can imagine an old scarred man sitting on the beach on the island of Patmos wondering what was really going on in the world. He must have wondered what Jesus meant when he said that it would be better for him when he left. Remember Jesus said to the, to the disciples, hey, I'm going to send you another one, the council, it's going to be better for you. John must have sat in Patmos and gone like, is this better? Is this better? What did you mean? He must have wondered what Jesus meant when he said that he was returning soon. Jesus, when you said soon, I was thinking 60 minutes, 60 days. It's been 60 years. When you said soon, were you flexing that phrase like when boys go out for drinks, I'll be home soon? Like, uh, what did you mean with that word soon? Uh, where are you? Where are you? All my friends are dead. Where, where are you? He must have wondered what Jesus meant when he said that he would be with the church even to the end of the age. And as he sat facing his death under that cruel emperor, he must have gone, I thought you were going to be with us. Now I'm hearing, I'm hearing stories of how the church is being crushed. They're being fed to lions. They're being crucified along the main roads. Where are you? I thought you were going to be with us. And so friends, just like us, stop. In the midst of the bumps and scrapes and struggles and frailty and futility of life, John must have wondered what was really going on into the universe and in that moment, Jesus appears to him and shows him some stuff. And that's what I want us to look at in Revelation 1. All right, let's go. First one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel, that word could equally be translated messenger, to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. I'm in the ESV, by the way, if you're wondering how to follow along. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So just by reading it aloud today, the scripture says we'll be blessed. Uh, it'll be something that'll bring us joy and transformation just by reading aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is Near. Okay, I've got eight observations that I'm going to make as I go through the text today. I know that sounds like hell to most of you, okay, but just kind of stick with me. I'll, I'll land the plane in a few minutes, but we're just going to go through the text and I'll say eight things. The first thing that I want to say is this. 
We all, in our life, in our struggles, in our wrestles, in our fights, we all want to know how it ends. Now, now we do this on a macro level. We do this with the scriptures. When you come to Revelation, you get, ooh, how does it end? Is it like a Nicholas, May, a Nicholas Cage movie? Is it the Left Behind series? How is it all going to end? Are you pre-millennial, millennial post-millennial? I'm hopefully millennial, by the way, if you care. Um, is it going to be pre-trip, post-trip, mid-trip? How, how are these things all going to play out? We want to know how it ends. But we also do this in a micro level in our life. We want to know when will the season end? How will this situation resolve? When will there be more money in the bank? When will this relationship come about? When will this relationship go away? We're desperately trying to figure out when will this thing that we're in end? When will my studies end? When will this work end? Okay, that's what we do. We just live season to season to season. Oh, when I finish studying, then I'll go flat out for Jesus. Then you work and realize that you had all the time in the world when you're studying, right? And then you go, okay, well, when I'm working, once I have kids, then I'll get in Christian community. Then you have kids and you realize they're sinners just in small sizes. Um, And then you go, when my kids grow up, then I'm all in for Jesus. And then your kids grow up and you buy a boat at the Vaal. And then you go, well, when I retire and then the day after you retire, you die. All right. And you go like, I kind of waited for when this every season would end and we never live. Right. So we all want to know how it ends, but what Revelation seems concerned to tell us is not how it ends, but it wants us to know the one who is both the beginning and the end. When Jesus appears to John, he's more concerned with saying, look at me, than he is with saying, draw a map. He's saying, I am the beginning and the end. You're going to need to know me. Don't worry about how it ends. Don't worry about what happens with the mission. Look at me. There's purpose in what we're reading right here. Let's just do some Bible geek stuff for a while here. The word revelation, the one there in verse one, is the Greek word apocalypsis, okay? And I know you get very excited. You picture chaos AD, comic books, and uh, and apocalyptic literature. Apocalypsis, you know what it means? The unveiling. The unveiling. It's the pulling back of the veil. It's you can see something, but you can't quite see it, and then you pull it back. Apocalypsis. Now you can see the thing fully. And so what happens to John on Patmos is that Jesus unveils to John what is actually going on in the universe, and it changes us. It changes us. Look what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You know how we think we change? We think we change through effort. We think we change through programs. You know how the Scripture says we change? We behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled face. Someone pulls back the veil, the revelation occurs, and we go, oh my goodness, that's who Jesus is. That changes us. And that's the primary concern of Revelation 1. The principle that that verse teaches and the principle that is taught in 2 Corinthians is that we become, listen, we become what we most behold. We we become what we most behold. We were drawn to and become more like that which we look at the most, It isn't just seeing is believing in Christianity. It is actually seeing is becoming. Now listen, I think for many of us, we struggle to follow Christ with any kind of fervor and zeal and faithfulness because we don't look at who he is enough. We, We look at Domitian and we look at the island of Patmos and we look at our circumstances all the time. But we don't look at who Jesus Christ is enough. We look at the world. So many of us just looking at the world, just going with the narrative of the world. Do you know that the world is lost? 
And so many of us just take our cues from the world. We get, we get all our cues on, on morality, on finances, on sexuality, on how things should function just by looking at the world. And then we come up with stupid phrases like this, in this day and age. You know what we do when we say in this day and age? We say, this is the smartest day and age ever. It's not. It's just not. It's just history repeating on a big, slow wheel. Culture always does this, but so many of us look to the world for, for how we're supposed to govern our lives. How many of us look to the evil one? We don't even know it. But if you're continually discouraged, continually accused, continually guilty, I'll tell you what, the scripture says that's not from God. So many of us take our self-identity actually from God's enemy. How many of us look at our circumstances? Seem overwhelming, seem like they can't be endured, seem like they can't be overcome. And, and, and we take our faith cues off of that. And so when things go well, we're like, oh yeah, brilliant, me and Jesus. And when the big dips come, we're like, where are you? Where, where are you? As a pastor in a church, I see this all the time. All the time. Not a lot of us just take time to behold Christ. And as a result, we struggle to trust Him in the midst of difficulty or even just in the midst of mundane survival. You know what some of the dangers are of vibrant church life? You're gonna live spiritual experience to spiritual experience to spiritual experience. But you know what comes tomorrow? Monday. Staff meetings. Cranky bosses. You know what comes after that? Tuesday. And Wednesday, it's like just hang in. And then, oh, who's a Thursday, okay? And then we're excited towards the weekend. It's how we live, just mundane survival. How are you going to get through mundane survival? How are you going to know that there's meaning to your routine? How are you going to know that there's meaning to changing nappies? How are you going to know there's meaning to washing dishes? How are you going to know there's meaning to your Excel spreadsheets? You're going to have to have revelation of what's going on behind what's going on. There's something going on behind what's currently going on in your life. And Revelation 1 is going to pull back the veil so that you can see that. Have you ever felt like you've seen reality properly someone's pulled back the veil on a situation has changed the way you've seen it have you ever seen someone who's struggling and you've stood in judgment over them and then you go find out their circumstances and it's like a veil's pulled back right you go like oh, oh. or, or alternate in my context what i see all the time looks like people are nailing it looks like life is just brilliant and then a veil is pulled back you catch them in an honest moment and you realize they're like this with debt that the house is bonded three times over and that the cars are on a full maintenance lease which is our idolatrous code for a responsible way to own vehicles um and and and, and everyone's living like this and the veil is pulled back and you go like oh my goodness you're drowning like everyone else you're drowning like everyone else I'm hoping that revelation will actually change us as we pull back the veil and see the thing that's going on behind the thing okay I've got to keep going. If Jesus is going to reveal what he's really like, then what does he reveal he's really like? I'm just going to read this spectacular text. I, I ask in advance for your forgiveness if there's some emotion in the reading of it. Every time I read this text, the Sufi found me at my desk this morning reading this text again. Uh, I'm like an 11-year-old girl at a One Direction concert after the hot guy left, okay? Um, it, it, it's just deeply, deeply moving. If you're a person of faith, to actually just stop for a sec, just stop for a sec, and actually believe that this is what's going on behind what's going on. All right, first of all, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Some people say those seven churches are church ages. They're actually churches. Grace to you. Oh, my gosh. Grace to you. And peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. What a way to start. 
and from the seven spirits that are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is gracious and merciful. He's gracious and merciful. The seven churches that these are written to aren't doing great. Go home and read Revelation 2 and 3. Seriously, if you, if you want to be part of a local church, Revelation 2 and 3 is so helpful because he's going to call all of these churches to repent. Every church has to repent. He's going to call them to repent in, in different ways. But they're sinners. They've fallen. There's idolatry. There's, 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 there's rampant, weird, licentious sexual behavior. There's all sorts of things going on. And I would expect John to start the letter with, hey, Jesus has appeared to me, and here's what he says. Come on. You can do better. You know better than this. This is foolishness. This is folly. How does he start? Grace and peace to you from the one who is and, and who was and who is to come. How many of us, friends, we're actually afraid of the veil being pulled back. We actually don't want to behold Christ. We actually don't want to spend time engaging with him. We don't want to press into who he really is because we're seriously worried about how he will receive us. To the seven churches in Asia that are no different than us, he starts with grace and peace. Then it gets better. Look at this. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Oh my goodness. Adrian's exhorted us in this area already. I think it's my favorite part of all of scripture. John has a real theology of the love of God. He doesn't just tell us that Jesus loves us. He always proves it. He always shows the ultimate reality. And look what he does here. To him who loves us, here's the proof. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. Look what he says in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. Just listen to this. Don't turn there. In this, have you ever wondered, hey, does God love me? Well, here's what John would say to you. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, if you've ever doubted. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word for punishment. Here's what John says. Just, just dial in. If you believe the scripture, I'm not going to assume that this morning. I'm glad, I'm glad you're glad you're glad you're here if you don't. But if you believe if you believe that Jesus was really the Son of God, and if you believe that the cross is a reality, that it really happened, then the one thing you cannot believe is that God doesn't love you. It's not possible. It's not faithful, it's not sensible, it's not logical, it's not God honoring. Because he's saying to you, it's there, I've shown you. The propitiation for your sins in this is love. Not that you loved God, but that he loved you and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for your sins. You can't doubt it anymore. Now, I know we do, but it makes no sense when we do. John, sitting on his own, feeling abandoned, gets the vision to him who loves us. His life is tougher than yours. John's life is tougher than yours. And yet his overwhelming sense is of the love of Jesus Christ and the fact that Christ freed us from our sins by his blood. Verse six. And he made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right.
Jesus isn't just loving, he isn't just gracious and merciful and kind, he's also transformative. He changes people. He's in the business of, of taking people from here to there. Now, when you read things like verse six, made us into a kingdom priest to his God the Father, we assume that these guys were the priests, that they, they were special people. There was something about these churches that made them a kingdom of priests. But I'm gonna tell you again, when you read chapters two and three, you'll discover that they aren't. They've got moral issues like us, faith issues like us, compromise issues like us, church at Laodicea, but they had still been made into a kingdom of priests. Guys, I can't really emphasize this enough. Just stick here. Just look right at me. Revelation and the rest of scripture is not actually about you as an individual. It's weird. I've looked through the concordance. You're not in there. You're not. It's not a roadmap to life. I've looked through the back of the Bible. There's some maps in there, but they're mainly to the Holy Land. Okay. Um, they're not like, should I go to Rao or UJ? Okay. I know this is shaking some of you. The scriptures are a book about the revelation of Jesus Christ. They're about Jesus, and they're written to a collective, a group of people. Now, we are fiercely individualistic. We, we want everything to be about my rights, my way, my emotions, my senses and sensibilities. The scriptures continually clumps us together in a collective in the church. Now that doesn't nullify or undermine the individual love that Christ has for us. He has that to be sure. He loves us so much that he lumps us together with a group of people. This thing is about a collective, the church, and the church is made up of, listen, None other. There's no other in the church. Well, there's some wolves, but they're unbelievers. If you're a believer in the church, you're a kingdom of priests. You're either a good priest or a bad priest, but you're a priest. Now, I know you're going like, well, I don't even have the collar. Buy one if it helps you, all right? And, and every morning wear it for a little while, and it will remind you that, that the work of the ministry in the church is not to be done purely by the leaders of the church. The work of the ministry of the church is to be done by the priests in the church who are the believers, and that overseers and shepherds exist, Ephesians tells us, to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry. You are all priests in God's church. God has saved you, not to put you on a shelf until heaven, but to make you a priest and to use you in and amongst his people. Peter describes it by saying, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim, listen, you, not Adrian, just, okay, preaching's important, not Ross, just, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. You're a kingdom of priests. Jesus transforms you from a helpless sinner into a kingdom of priests so that you can declare his excellencies in the great city of Johannesburg. Astonishing, eh? That's the thing behind the thing. That's why your job matters. That's why your commute matters. That's why your family matters, that you may declare the excellencies of him who has called you from darkness into his marvelous light. You're a priest. You're a priest. Verse 7. Let me read a long section. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Look at this now. Uh, we've neutered Jesus. Look at what his return looks like. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. You know what John sees? Oh, Jesus is coming back and it's not gonna be a good day for everyone but it doesn't crush his faith. He goes, even so, amen. I trust in God's grace more than my own. 
I trust in God's wisdom more than my own. And so even when I look at hard things like the judgment of Christ, I say, even so, amen. Now look at this. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and the last. Who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse nine. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I love it. It's a Sunday. He's having a quiet time and something remarkable happens. And so just because you send the guy off to an island on his own doesn't stop his, his, his zeal and his fervor for the Lord. Even though he's suffering in his 90s, on a Sunday he goes like, you know what I should do? I should read the Bible and pray. So how many of you like, he broke up with me. I'm mad with Jesus. I'm not going back to church. John's like, they dipped me in oil. Where's my Bible? Where's my Bible? And I heard behind me a loud voice with a trumpet, like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Okay. So Jesus is, is gracious and he's kind. He's loving. He's transformative. Now look at this church plant. You guys need this. Jesus is with his church. He's with his church. Uh, what a thing to see. The son of man revealed as he really is walking amongst some lampstands. John is going to tell us at the end of this passage that the lampstands are churches. Small lights showing us the big light that is Jesus Christ. Now, now we're Joe Burgers, so we can actually picture this, okay? Thanks to load shedding. Um, and so John turns around and he sees one like the Son of Man, and he's surrounded by little lanterns on stands. Now, here's the key thing Jesus isn't above them, he isn't standing off in the corner with his arms folded, ticked with them, he is amongst them. Walking amongst them, I can imagine him trimming their wicks and, and making sure that they have enough oil to burn brightly and strongly. Over the last three months, I have had the most difficult season of ministry in my life. I've been um, full-time in church by God's grace for 10 years. And over the last three months, it's just been like apocalypse now. It's just been unbelievable. And, and there's been... There's been onslaught from without. There's been brokenness from within. And, and there's been days where I've been felt like I'm sitting on the island of Patmos going like, my goodness, what are you doing? Jesus, didn't you say you were with us? This image of him amongst the lampstands is wonderful. Because you know what we're going to be, we're gonna, it's going to go on to tell us? These are local churches. And so somewhere, the thing behind the thing, stick with me. The thing behind the thing somewhere right now is that BBC has a lampstand in heaven. And that anchor church has a lampstand in heaven. And that Jesus walks amongst them, tending to them, protecting them, watching over them, making sure they burn brightly in onslaught. He walks amongst the churches of the world. Now, to be sure, he's going to warn some of them, go read Revelation 2 and 3. He's going to tell them, I'll take your lampstand away. And, and you know what? Ephesus Pergamum, Thyatira, Laodicea, Philadelphia, no churches today. None. Why? He took them away because they didn't listen. But he's in and amongst them. 
Guys, it's a church plant. Okay, if you're a visitor this morning, you don't even know what that means. This is kind of a, a young thing, just getting going. You're going to need to remember most days while you're setting up chairs and while you're being in community groups in the week. The thing behind the thing is that Jesus is in and amongst you and that anchor has a lampstand and that he's tending to it. He's tending to it. Now, he's going to ask you to repent of stuff. Otherwise, he'll, ask, he'll, he'll tell you he'll take the lampstand away. But in the meanwhile, be encouraged that he tends to that lampstand. This is Jesus' possession. He has it. He builds it. He preserves it. He disciplines it. It's precious to him, and it should be precious to us. All right, next part of the verse. I'm nearly done, okay? Sorry, this is how I always preach. I know it's boring and dull, but we'll get through it, okay? Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Just stop for a sec. Just think. John, 60 years since he's seen his friend. And he hears a loud trumpet, and he turns around, and he looks amongst the lampstands. He's like, is that... Is that, is that Jesus? And he looks at him, and, but it's him, but he looks different. He's got a long robe and a golden sash. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. Okay, so Jesus is gracious and merciful. He's, he, he's loving. He, he's, he's with the church. He's transforming his people into a kingdom of priests. And Jesus himself is a king and a priest, and we need both of those in our life. Otherwise, we won't know where to turn when things go wrong in our life. Jesus is wearing priestly robes. The, the, the Greek word here for his long robes is the robes that the priests would wear um, for the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And he's wearing a gold sash, which is the sash of a king. Guys, we need that precious combination of priest and king. And he's perfectly both. We're told in Hebrews that he's a sympathetic high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. So, so that when we're frail and when we're weak, Jesus goes, I know how that feels. Betrayal? Oh yeah, I know that one. False accusations, I get that one. Poverty, oh, I felt that. Friends turning away from you, I know exactly what that feels like. Being misunderstood, oh yes, oh yes. Being used by people, I can identify, I can identify. Pain, I felt that. Sorrow, oh, his sweat, his sweat was like drops of blood. It's a sign of sorrow to the point of shock, he would be hospitalized. But he's also king. And so he doesn't just sit with you in the mess and go, I know how that feels. He goes, I know how that ends. I know how that ends. My son Daniel, four years old, um, just an absolute delight, goes to school with Eli, um, and they, uh, they're good Chinas. And um, Daniel, a little while ago, um, he's got my DNA, right? So he's never going to be a giant. Um, we're kind of hobbit-esque in stature. Um, I like to think of it as perfectly average, um, but some people consider me under tall, all right? And so... But it's okay. It's all right. Low center of gravity. Um, and uh, in a fight, I can take you like a honey badger. Um, and so, believe it or not, Daniel is growing. Okay? I haven't grown since I was nine. But Daniel's four, and so um, he's growing. And so he gets growing pains. You guys, do you guys, anyone remember growing pains? Deep ache in the middle of your bones. And so I wake up um, a few nights ago. No, it's actually a few months ago. Daniel's crying. And it's very rare for him to be crying in his sleep. So I go through, but what's going on? And he's like, my bones, they ache. And so I go, oh, but I know, I know that. I know how that feels. I remember those. And so I climb into bed with him. I just kind of spoon his little body and I rub his legs. 
and I'm rubbing them and I'm talking into his ear. I'm going, but this is because you're becoming a big boy. And sometimes pain shapes us and it molds us and, and, and it changes us into the person that we're called to be. And mommy and daddy love you and will be, be with you through the whole thing. And I can hear his breathing getting a bit slow. And I'm like, I'm freaking dad of the year, right? Okay, like they're going to be writing magazine articles about this soothing technique here. And then he, 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 he suddenly he rolls over and he looks me in the face. He grabs me by the face. He goes, dad. I go, yeah, my boy. He goes, I love you so much. I go, thanks, boy. He goes, it's nice that you're here. I go, thanks, boy. He goes, but you're not really helping. <laughs> Ten seconds later, he goes, please go get mom. <laughs> so <laughs> he knows that dad can play the role of priest in his life. I can be there and say, I know how you feel, but I can't fix the problem. <laughs> he needs dad and mom. We need priest and king. Uh, we need the priest who can tell us, hey, I know, I know how that feels. Temptation? Gosh, I know how that feels. You think there weren't smoking hot women around Jesus in ministry? You think this is a new thing? Hey, we just neutralized this thing. There must have been Middle Eastern women walking behind him going like, I'll do anything for that guy. He was genuinely tempted, we're told, in every way. And so when we're tempted, he goes, I know how that feels. Yet he's king. And so he knows how to solve it. Okay, both of those beautiful things. I'm nearly finished, sorry. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. You ever been to Vic Falls? You heard the waters falling over the edge? That's what it sounds like when Jesus speaks. In his right hand, he held seven stars. What's he doing? He's thumbing his nose at Domitian. <laughs> He's going like, you can put your face on a coin. I'm the one who holds the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Okay, so Jesus is king, and he's priest, and he's loving, and he's merciful, and he's kind, and he's transformative, and he's with his church, but he's also a fearful and righteous judge. He's fearful, and he's righteous in all that he does. He may have white hair, we're told, but he doesn't have fading or dull eyes. He has eyes of fire. He sees everything. Just imagine John. He knows Jesus and he knows those eyes, but now they hold something that he didn't see before. It's something that simultaneously draws him into a deep stare, but also something that makes him want to avert his gaze. Have you ever looked in the face of a male lion? So we went with some friends to Valkofondon a few years ago, and uh, it took us on a game drive, and uh, we were standing outside the vehicle um, up at a trig beacon where everyone needs to have drinks. If you've been to that wonderful reserve, you know what I'm talking about. And suddenly we hear bursting across the radio that the alpha male, the big guy, the head of the pride, has been spotted. And so um, the guy walks across casually and goes and grabs his radio, and he goes, okay, where have you seen him? He said, no, walking north across the plain up towards the trig beacon. And so I'm like, this trig beacon, he's like, so we all jump on the vehicle and literally a minute later this big male comes walking out and comes walking along um, uh, uh, across and so our ranger idiot um, says oh I know where he's going he's going to the southern plains we'll intercept him um, and so he cuts him off and makes the line kind of change his path and so he walks along the road next to the vehicle I'm not kidding not I'm not prone to exaggeration I could have reached out and pulled his mane and he's walking along next to the vehicle, and you can hear him breathing, you can hear him grunting, and my friend, my mate Brad, just slides a packet of biltong across into my lap. <laughs> and then he stops, and he sat down right next to the vehicle, and I'm not kidding, I could reach out of the vehicle and stroke his head if I wanted to, I didn't want to. But, but I sat and looked at him for ages, and you know what the weirdest thing happened? It's total stare down, and I lost. Because for a while, you're drawn in by his power, by his magnificence. You're like, look at this thing. 
but you realize when he's looking back at you, <laughs> you go like, I've got to look away. <laughs> this is John with Jesus. It's his friend, but he's got eyes of fire. He sees everything. Friends, this is simultaneously encouraging and discouraging, isn't it? He sees everything. That means, yeah, everything. Like everything. Like who you are on your own, he sees that. But it also means he sees all the stuff that no one else sees. He sees you trying even when you fail. He sees your, your private devotion to him that no one else notices. He sees when you do good deeds and you don't have to put it on Facebook. He sees all of that stuff. He sees everything with those eyes of fire. You see, Jesus is a friend, but he isn't a pet. He's our savior, but he isn't anyone's doormat. He's not to be fooled with. That's the thing behind the thing in your life. That's what's going on. He's ruling and reigning with eyes, and, eyes of fire. He still sees. He, he still sees. His word is powerful like a sword. And as John said earlier in the text, when he returns, the nation will wail. The nations will wail on account of him and his word. Even so, amen. Look at how John responds. Here's how I'll close to seeing his old friend. Yeah, now, remember, John's in his 90s, frail body, lots of scars, lived a long life, hasn't seen Jesus for 60 years. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Look at this. This right hand that holds the seven stars. He lays on his friend John and says, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Last thing. How do we respond? I, I hope. I can't. I've got so many limitations. My hope is that as we read the text this morning, that for some of you, the veil is just pulled back a little bit and you go like, oh my goodness, Jesus. Oh my goodness, the thing behind the thing. Oh my goodness, what's going on behind what's going on? But how should we, how should we respond when, when we see this, when we catch glimpses of this? Well, our response to this Jesus should be fearful fearlessness. It should be fearful fearlessness. There should be fear, reverent awe. A 90-something-year-old man throws himself into the dirt at the revelation of the magnificence of Jesus Christ. Friends, I think we have become too flippant. I, I think we've lost our awe and our wonder. We believe some supernatural stuff, and if we really believe it, we would be like John, face down in the dirt. I met with someone this week who was suffering. You know what they said? They said, when I see Jesus... I've got a lot of questions that he's gonna to need to answer. And the best I could do as a pastor is lovingly put my hand on their shoulder and say, when you see Jesus, you'll be face down in the dirt and none of your questions will matter at all. None of them will matter at all. I love Christ's response to John. He takes that fearful right hand of judgment and authority and encourages them up. Now look what he doesn't do, listen. He doesn't say, fear not, John, I'm not that big of a deal. He says, fear not, I'm bigger than you think. <laughs> fear not, the thing behind the thing is that I'm ruling and reigning in a way that you can't possibly imagine. Don't worry how it ends. Get to know the one who is the beginning and the end. 
fear not. So fearful, face down, but fear not in what you're facing. Fearful, fearlessness. The only response to the pulling back of the veil and the true revelation of the thing behind the thing. So the band's coming up. We're going to sing in response. I'm not a guy who tries to create moments. It's just not my thing. But I also do know that sometimes in our walk, there are lines in the sand. There's moments where we get revelation. We get the mystery unveiled. And we, and, and we do something about it. We, we change our posture. Like John, we put our face to the ground. Instead of thinking about tomorrow's schedule, instead of worrying about how it will play out, we go like, my goodness, you're the beginning and the end. I forgot that. I'm sorry. We repent and we rejoice and we're restored. These moments are important. And so I'm not going to tell you how to do it. All I'm going to ask is consider it. If you walked in here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, this is who he really is. This, is. this is Christianity unveiled. We believe some crazy stuff. We believe it with our whole hearts. He was dead. Now he's alive. He's ruling and reigning. He's coming back and he's bringing a sword. Repent now. Repent now. If you do believe, maybe you've been spinning your wheels for a while and Christianity has been pretty nominal. And this morning you realized, oh my goodness, I'm toying with the Lion of Judah. I'm treating him like a lapdog when he's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Maybe today is the time for repentance and restoration in front of him. And if you're someone who's hurting, Maybe this morning is the time you get to just be face down in front of him and imagine his right hand on your shoulder saying, fear not. I'm the first and I'm the last and I'm with you to the very end of the age. You know what's going on behind what's going on? Jesus is ruling and reigning. He'll return. But in the meanwhile, we say to him who loves us and has freed us, through the shedding of his blood. Behold, he is coming soon. Amen. Father God, thank you so much for your word. I pray this morning that in some, in some small way, that the veil is pulled back, that, that your son is revealed and, and that your scriptures are, are right and true when they say that we with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the resurrected king are changed and transformed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, we can't change us. We can't change what's going on in our life. We do pray this morning that we'd get a glimpse of what's going on in the heavenlies and that that would transform us from one degree of glory to another in Jesus' name. Amen.